You're listening to AI Proficiency, turning tomorrow into today, a podcast dedicated to sharing the knowledge and language of artificial intelligence in the Department of Defense. Join us as we discuss the passion projects for some of today's brightest minds and how artificial intelligence is being cultivated, procured, and delivered throughout the U.S. government. Be prepared to learn how artificial intelligence has become a part of everyday life and is working to support and further government missions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow into Today. I'm Ariel Moore, the producer of this podcast. Again today, we are joined by our moderator, Kirsten, helping us gather relevant knowledge and expertise from our guest today, Malesh Murugesan, CEO and founder of Abion and co-founder of Chirp AI. So thank you for joining us today. Kirsten, the floor is yours. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today. I'm very excited, our guest, he's new to the podcast. So I'm going to have him introduce himself and his background. We've got Malesh here. Malesh, could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself? I'd love to kind of hear like your career trajectory, how you got to where you are today. And then if you want to throw in any of your current projects or passions surrounding technology, I think that's a great place to start. Sure, sure. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. My name is uh, Malesh Murugesan. I am the CEO and founder of Avion. We are a technology company that's in federal contracting. We are focused on innovative technologies and specifically in artificial intelligence. Uh, we've been in the space since since 2014, 2015 timeframe. Uh, we started this back when IBM Watson was used to be the you know the big 800 pound gorilla in in the space. So we were very very closely involved with IBM in building few of our AI models and kind of you know slowly transitioned. Actually, kind of closely worked with IBM as well in building few of their APIs. And you know when in 2018 uh, when Google released their Google BERT framework, which you know, for the for folks who are in the AI space, fairly aware that pretty much changed the landscape of of AI NLP. We jumped on the bandwagon as well. So, you know, BERT is the T in BERT stands for transformers, which is the which is the major technology, which is the same T that's in GPT T. So, so that's the technology that has changed NLP, right? So, so we've jumped on the bandwagon of Google BERT and and started working on open source based. Yeah, I work and we continue to do it today. I'm very, very excited about what's happening in this space, especially you know, in the last you know, the last three, four years, but especially in the last six months or so, this has just really taken off. And since OpenAI and GPT and, and other large language models came into the space. So we do quite a bit of work as far as clients go. We do quite a bit of work for the US Navy, specifically for military seal of command. We also do some work for the IRS and the Customs and Border Protection. So, just a personal story. You know, I'm I I came to this country back in 1999. There was an exodus of 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 students from from you know my motherland, which is India, to the U.S. for you know better opportunities, especially in the technology space. Right, and this is when you know Y2K and all of that is happening. So, you know, I was one of the millions of folks who kind of transitioned over to to the US and you know went to school here I finished finished school and started working for a small government contracting 
firm. As I started off as a dev- as programmer myself, and this is back in the day, you know, writing Visual Basic code and and things like that. A few years into it, I, I was, you know, somehow my passion was more towards the system itself. How did the system, you know, rather than a specific functionality of a system, a little bit of a bigger picture. So I wanted to kind of move from just being a software developer to someone, you know, to a little bit of higher level as someone who can understand the system. And so long story short, I became a project manager to a program manager of uh, or a product manager of the software that we were working for with the Navy. I worked on that for a few years. And then I was like, you know what, I want to learn more. So I went and got an MBA after that and, and came back and worked for the same firm. And that firm got acquisitioned by a larger firm, actually Rolls-Royce, a Naval Marine, bought that, bought that smaller company I was working for called Seaworthy Systems. So after the acquisition, I, you know, I, I kind of moved on. I left Rolls-Royce, but, you know, working, still working on the Navy work, kind of moved on completely out of government contracting, went to South Florida, went and worked for Miami Children's Hospital as a director of IT there and worked on really cool stuff. This is, again, back in 2010, uh, worked on mobile health, telemedicine, and the mobile health was just taking off at that time. So implemented really a lot of really cool stuff for, for Miami Children's. And lo and behold, you know, I kind of truly believe in having some, having relationships, right? And and with you know we had had really good relationships with the folks from from the navy and i would you know even after i left i would call call them once every month or so and be like hey how are things going you know how's the project coming along was you know blah 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 right and so i kind of kept in touch and and you know a year and a half two years down the road they they actually told me can you come back and and take over some of the work because you know, you know, we need someone who's who's been in the weeds from day one, type of thing, and and so hence, you know, I'm like, sure, I can, you know, I'll come back, but I'll start my own firm, and you know, maybe I'll come in as a subcontractor or a consultant initially, and then we'll see where we can take this from there. So that's kind of how I started started Abion itself, the company itself. It stands for Above and Beyond. Kind of took the two words and and put it together and called it Abion. So. That's the reason for the name. So that that's how the company started. And this was back in 2012, 2013 as a computer science and, and a developer. I'm also very passionate about design and, and UI, UX and ease of use and, and all of that stuff. So we, we started off as a design firm for and, and was working on you know building websites or building mobile apps, very design focused. And we kind of stumbled into AI because we were actually doing a lot of work in the commercial sector. And you know, again, because of my where I was there in, in Miami and South Florida, we were not really in government se- government sector as much. So we were working for this firm who is a psychiatrist, and he and what he was doing was actually fairly fascinating. And he's been talking to you know several of his patients, you know, and he's he's at this point like 75 years old, you know, and, and so he's he's been in in the space for good 30 years or so and you know every conversation that he would have with his patients he would he would document so he would document all of these conversations in 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 a word file type of thing so you know we we engaged with him for a completely different proving his website type of thing and and he said hey you you know you guys seem like smart guys i have all this data about my patients or all the conversations i've had about my patients and i i'm hearing there's this technology called artificial intelligence that can take these 
you know, conversations and, and create like a chatbot. Can you guys start looking into it? And so we were like, sure, why not? Right. And so then we started exploring the space of NLP where how can we take hundreds and hundreds of documents? And again, these are, there's no PII there or PHI there, hundreds and hundreds of these documents. And how can we convert this data into something that, you know, how can we understand this data? So brought us into the NLP space. I know it's full circle now and 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 IBM Watson or IBM Health IBM Watson Health was the big gorilla there so we started using there and hence we we are in the AI space so that's that's the long and short of it <laughs> That's very cool. I have so many questions from what you just shared with me. So first off I'm curious when you came to this country and you started your education did you always have this vision for yourself or what kind of like was the driving motivator for getting into this work. I also wanted to know, did you study computer science as undergrad? Was that always part of your plan or was something that you happened upon when you started your first job? So it's interesting because I actually studied electronics and communication as my undergraduate. I was doing my master's. I went to electrical engineering as, as my master's for for one semester and then i you know as i was you know i had a few roommates who were all doing computer science and information systems and as i was talking to them about what they're working on i i felt you know i was more interested in in what they were doing you know versus you know at least for me personally you know it was electrical versus electrical engineering so the, the semester the next semester i actually enrolled in in databases and the concept of databases really fascinated me at that time and so I, you know, I started enrolling in, in database and started taking more and more classes around software engineering, computer science, user interface design, you know, again, databases, software requirements, that type of stuff, really how to how to build software, right? And and this is, you know, 1999 again. So so very, very early stages and nothing like where it is today. But but I still remember you know, of course, it's like operating. I remember taking operating systems, and I was like, "Man, this is this is incredible. This is, I mean, you can't even imagine. Like, you know, it's like really talking about how an operating system works, right? That if you want to write an operating system, you could write it in that class, that type of that type of class. So it was it was just it was super fascinating for me just to learn about all of this stuff, right? And and so that's that's kind of how I how I got into this into the space, and then actually took this class, the user interface design. And I was actually talking to an old friend of mine who took the class with me. And we were talking about how the design that we're doing today is, is still relevant in some ways. You know, it's all about show the user the easiest, you know, less than two clicks, you should be able to get to where you're, what you're looking for, right? And, you know, it's applicable even today, a lot more applicable even today, because people are a lot more, a lot less patient in trying to get their information out as soon as possible. And, and hence, you know, back to back to chat GPT or, or, you know, where you don't even want to Google it anymore. You want to just ask it and and have the GPT do all the work or the AI do all the work. So it's interesting how, how it's relevant today. Yeah. The bar is set very high now, which kind of brings me to my next question for you, which, you know, we talked about the speed at which technology is changing, particularly just in the past six months. Does that ever concern you or it can seem shocking at times, I feel, but what are your thoughts around that? It is shocking, even even for someone who is in the in the space. You know, what really surprised me is once you know you kind of knew you know Google and and Facebook they were all working on 
AI and you know Facebook created Fair, which is the Facebook AI research group, you know years ago, right? And and Google created the Google Brain years ago. But when OpenAI released ChatGPT or you know just large language models in itself, I know everybody kind of keeps using the term ChatGPT, but the, really the term is is large language models, right? And and so within a, within a week, you know Google was able to release release theirs, and within in the next two weeks, Facebook was able to, you know, release it. So it's not like that they, they just worked on it the last, you know, they have been working on it for years and years. It's just, I think it kind of brought everything to the market at the same time because they they wanted attention as well, right? Like the chat GPT was taking too much of the attention. So although it seems like, um, so so I guess the, the way to look at this also is although it seems like this is all moving so fast, I think it has been, it has been cooking, for lack of a better term, for for a fairly long time. It's just the release of it now. It's much much faster because now you you are in in kind of race who who's you know whose system or whose large language model is better. Uh, so I think that's what that's what it feels like to me. So we you know we we got into large language models even before ChatGPT came out. This is you know back in January of 2022. So, Kind of like a year ago, I guess, it's, you know, we got into large language models and we've been starting, starting to work on it for a few, for a year or, year or so before, you know, before this whole large language model took off. And what we find it fascinating now is so many versions of it are out there right now. You know, so we have, we have a little research lab here where we have multiple versions of large language models and we are kind of going through each one of them, especially from for us, looking at it from a data security standpoint, especially you know because we work for the government and you know we don't we want to make sure that the data is not we don't put any of that government data in in a private entity cloud or you know the, the cybersecurity becomes very very critical in the standpoint right so, so that that piece of it is is very fascinating where now even we are able to take take these models and being to being able to deploy it for our reasons and being able to work on it. Yeah. So question for you in working with the government, do you have insight into how they plan to monitor and regulate the development and the use of this AI technology now and into the future? I think there has been a lot of discussions. There's been a lot of regulations that are discussions around regulations that are that are going on around this, right? And I think the the to me the low-hanging fruit really is is keep your data secure, right? That's number one, because the federal data, the government data is extremely, extremely critical, and you don't want that data to, to get out, right? I don't know if you, if you saw this news article that came out a few months ago, where one of the developers was not able to figure out, one of the developers worked for Samsung company, was not able to figure out a solution to a coding problem. And he's like, you know, mid-level, low, junior-level software developer, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to try ChatGPT and upload my code into ChatGPT and say, hey, can you figure out what the mistake on in this code is, right? And and so by uploading it, what he he actually sent to ChatGPT a lot of Samsung's intellectual property, which you know other folks are not supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to upload it to a public data. So so you don't want situations like that with government data, right? I mean, so we are working with chip repair data. That data. It's not classified data, but it's still considered CUI, right? So, so for us to be able to 
so for the government, I think the number one priority would be to how to secure their data, right? I think so in that. And so when you talk about large language models there today, the technology is still fairly nascent from, from where that is, right? So, so we got to first tackle that problem. And I think where it's going to go after is what large, you know, and I was actually on a, on a panel around this and, and one of the panelists had said really good point, which I thought was, was interesting is there's so many large language models out there. How do you know, how did, how was this large language model developed? Because everybody says it's developed based on the entire internet. Was it, you know, what's, is there bias in this? Is there, you know, what's the trend, you know, how, what data, what kind of data was used to build this model and how much can I trust this model to be able to make decisions? Right. And, and so, so I think that's that's going to become a major uh, next step in identifying, you know, how do you, you can't just because works well and just because it's it's giving you the right answers for the current questions that you're asking, is this the right model that we want to use for our needs, right? And and if you, if you kind of think about it from a DOD standpoint, you know, you have you have machines making decisions in 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 various situations and scenarios. And if it's not explainable and if it's not transparent, then the ramifications of it is very, very, very high. Right? And, and so I think that's kind of where the next step needs to be looked at where, you know, how, how, do, we, how do you build metrics around trust of the models, right? And, and I don't think there's anything like that at this point. So that's, you know, that's step two. So there's like several of, you know, there's several things that needs to happen, I think, before, uh, you know, AI, large language models could be used for heavy government, you know, government usage. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. So since this is an AI literacy podcast, next question is, what do you think is the most important concept or maybe like two or three concepts that people really need to understand when it comes to AI literacy? Like pretend that you're talking to someone who has no idea. What is it that you would tell them? So, you know, it's interesting because I done a few training sessions to a few government agencies, just, you know, did one to Library of Congress, did one to Department of Homeland Security a few a month ago or so. And, and what I kind of tell them is uh, the world has changed in some ways, right? So we were, I mean, in the world of AI has changed some, in some ways. We were building, even, even us as a company, we were building narrow models for several years, and now you know. So so, and now now we are in the large language model, right? So, the the way narrow models work is, you know, if you if you want a model to recognize cats, for example, right, you would feed lots and lots of pictures of cats to this narrow model, and then by and then label them by saying this is a cat, this is a cat, this is a cat. And then, you know, feed a brand new picture of a cat and see if it's able to recognize that as a cat, right? And if it does not, then you feed more pictures of cat, say, this is a cat, this is a cat, this is a cat. But if it does, then then you take it to one step further by inserting a picture of a cat that's probably like jumping or, or you know, in a different position and see if it recognizes that as a cat, right? So that's kind of how you improve improve these models. So for example, you know, to for layman, if you kind of think about self-driving cars, how do they, how do the self-driving cars know to stop at a stop sign, right? So they have fed hundreds and thousands of pictures of stop signs saying this, this if you see this, you got to slow down and stop. 
but not all stop signs are look exactly the same in the sense that somebody could have you know striked off you know it couldn't it might have maybe bent a little bit somebody could have put stickers on it right so how do you make sure that the car recognizes even that as a stop sign so so then now you have to upload pictures of of stop signs that are not you know that, that are vandalized a little bit for lack of a better term right so so that's that's how we have all you know and that's how ai works it's all about the data that you train on on these models but that paradigm of training the models has, has shifted a little bit now because what has happened with large language models like you know like gpt like like llama and alpaca and all of these uh, models or you know google's bard or is is the the model has been trained on almost supposedly right so it's been trained on almost everything that's out there so you don't really have you know if you want to before if you want to model to recognize the cat you have to feed the cat picture to it now you don't have to you can just send the picture of a cat and say can you can you tell me what this is and it'll come back and tell you this is a cat right so 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 now how do we so how do we take this model that already knows almost everything and so but cater it to our needs right so because you know if you kind of think about it, it's like a superhuman that that pretty much knows everything but you want that superhuman to act as an architect if you're designing a building if you want that superhuman to to uh, to think like an architect if you're designing a building if you want that superhuman to think like a marine engineer a marine engineer if you're if you're thinking about repair and maintenance and or if you know you want the supercomputer to think like a surgeon if you're looking at radiology images right so i think that's where the challenge now comes in where how do you tell these models to you know there's there's an example that's out there where you can actually go to chat gpt and say write me a story about the moon as a 10 year old right and the GPT will now think like a ten-year-old, and will write you a story. And and or you can you can go back to that chat GPT and say, write me a story about the moon like an astronaut, right? And and it will write you a story that that how how an astronaut novelist would write, right? So it's completely two different ways. And so you're taking the same model in a way and asking it to do asking it to think like two different person, right? And that's that's kind of fascinating because if you kind of like think about it, how does how does it even do that, right? Like how do you when you tell it? Because you know we do a lot of this, we do prompt. The this concept is called prompt engineering, and we do quite a bit of this. Where our very first sentence is, "You are a, you know, AI expert, or you are a marine engineer, or you are a, an acquisition support personnel." So you kind of give it a role to this model to be able to start thinking like that role, right? And and so like in the example I gave you, so you know if you want the model to recognize you know, cancer cells and from radiology images, you got to actually tell them you are a radiologist. Now start looking at these pictures and and recognize cancer cells. So that so that's something that's that's kind of you know I think people needs to kind of get a get an understanding of it because there's a whole whole field of of prompt engineering that has come up just in the last three four months where it's really instead of building you know we were in the mode of building models now instead of building models you learn how to train these models right? you learn how to tune these models 
in a much more efficient way so you can get the results from the model that you want. And I think that's something that the, the new layman in from AI standpoint would have to start looking into. Yeah, it's fascinating and obviously opens up so many opportunities. My next question is about education and, you know, even taking it back to like the K through 12th grades even. How do you think schools and educators can better prepare students to work and understand AI just, you know, based on the future implications of it? And at what point do you think you start introducing this technology to to the, the learners of the world, <laughs> to the students of the world? You know, I think <laughs> that's, a, that's a very interesting question. I, I think the even if the if the teachers are not introducing it to the learners the learners are already finding it right and and you know speaking of podcasts there was a the daily new york times episode where they spoke to they talked about this where they spoke to a set of students who who used chat gpt to respond to answers and then they spoke to the teacher who was was teaching that class and obviously, you know, as you can imagine, the teacher was fairly frustrated that some of these students are are using ChatGPT to answer. And he's, you know, he's a he's a history teacher, right? So he's very, very passionate about history. And and from his perspective, it's like I just want the students to learn how great history is. And, yeah. and obviously, right, as a, as a teacher, you are always passionate about what you do. But um, you know, if you ask some of the students, the students are like, I just want to get get an A grade and get out of this class, right? So, so I think it's, the, it's a very tricky situation. You know, one thing I would say is, it's like the invent, you know, when the calculators came out, right? And and you know, people were doing math using, you know, using using their fingers and hands. And then when calculators came out, people started using calculators to do the to do the math. And and so, is that not a good thing? I mean, we use calculators today, and we're fine, right? So, so I think it's. Initially, anything when something new comes in, people kind of tend to freak out. But I feel like over the years, they'll try to live with it in in a way where it becomes valuable. You would use it, you know, in a valuable way rather than rather than try to avoid using it. You know, I I do think the education system will have to embrace it. If they don't, I don't know. The cat is out of the bag type of thing, right? It's it's now too too late to not embrace it. But I. I do, you know, there are there are things like GPT and and things like that where you know if somebody wrote an answer using a GPT, you can kind of kind of you know air quotes here, right? Detect it, but but definitely had to be embraced, I think. But but on a on a student level, it's it's interesting because you know I already I'm already hearing some of the students saying I hear programmers are not going to be around in the next you know in five years from now because you know now now the large language models can do the coding itself. So, so why am I learning computer science, right? And and so that's a very interesting. Is how do you answer that, right? And and you know the way I kind of think about it is creativity is something that's that's inherent to our, to humans, right? And and yes, you know now GPT is starting to make songs, and you know there's a writer's revolution now against AI, but. But I think the the human element of it, the human creativity, I don't is it's forever, right? So it's bottomless in, in some ways, in sense. So that human creativity, I don't, I do not think the AI can ever match up to. So anything that's in the creative space, I think, I think will will not go away anytime soon. 
and and so i would encourage the younger generation to to be more creative get into get into fields where there's there you know the two fields right where there's a lot lot of creativity that's involved too there's a lot of human touch right and you know, for example doctors and and patient care and and that, that so i don't i don't think doctors will be replaced by by an ai robot to come and do some you know you, you could do robotic surgery but still a human will have that human factor is very very important yeah it's almost like using it to enhance your abilities rather than replace them altogether Absolutely. So, yeah awesome thank you so my next question for you is just around the future of ai which i know is like a really big question but you know projecting out five or ten years from now what do you think that's going to look like and the impact that it's going to have on all of us well, I mean, there's there's so much that's happening, right? And and I mean, even in the past past six months or so, things have things have uh, improved so much. But the future is is to me, it's it's both promising and it's a little scary. I know the father of AI left Google Brain a few months ago and said, that, you know, I'm leaving because I want to create an awareness that this is this is a technology that needs to be regulated very very seriously very very quickly and and i agree 100 percent you know it's i was i was yesterday i was uh you know on youtube learning a little bit about auto gpt and and some of the AI technology and i saw this you know the recommendation videos that come up and one of them was showing that elon musk was firing a bunch of people over a zoom call and i was like really let me look at it so so I, I like saw for like maybe less than five seconds or so, and I'm like, this this looked very very real, but I was, somehow I was like, this doesn't. It's very hard for me to imagine that it actually happened, and and then I I found out that it's actually a deep fake where they they made this entire video as a fake video, right? And and so these deep fakes is very dangerous, right? And you have no idea what's real and what's not and how do you even create regulations to stop that and so those are the those are the things that's scary about the ai future right and and you know the the, the father of ai he he was he was mentioning the biggest peril with this is if you kind of think about humans you 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 know let's say let's say they give you a book and give me a book and both of us read that book and then at the end of the day at the end of it they ask you a question from that book the way you would have understood that book and answered the questions would be a little bit different from the way I would have understood that book. So the, the level of understanding of a text or context with humans is different for every human, right? And and so that's what makes us a little more unique. But with AI, especially with large language, you know, you give it a book, give it a book to a large language model, and all the instances of the large language model have the exact same understanding of that book. That's kind of scary because if you tell them, if, if a book says something is not good, and if you if you taught that to the to the AI model, and every one of them will believe that to be true. And and so that you know, so that's a really scary situation. So the regulations needs to be in place. Totally. Yeah. I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, political divide, people um, using these things to just further cause chaos. So it's definitely something for people to be aware of. And there's a lot of really smart people out there, but we all need to get on board with that. So um, thank you for sharing your insights with us today. 
Before I ask my final question, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to talk about before we end or any question that maybe I didn't ask you that you wish I had asked you? No, I think this was this was a really good good conversation. This is a space that that we are very very involved in, right and very passionate about and and we follow this very very closely and I'm actually very glad to be able to talk about it to to the group here. Great. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you. Hopefully we have you back again at some point. But my last question is going to be, if you were to write a book, and maybe you have, what would it be about and why? Well, that's an interesting question. I would I would certainly write, I write about two things. One, you know, maybe my my journey as, you know, what I've learned in life, someone who kind of strongly believe in human relationships, right? And, and you know, as, as, I'm, as I'm talking to you about it, I'm also thinking, Maybe I will write about human relationships as opposed to AI relationships, right? And how the human relationships are are so important and what what keeps keeps the world going around and go around. It's something that needs to be nurtured more and, and taken seriously as opposed to, you know, when these these technologies kind of take over. And then you can, you know, you can name hundreds of things, right? Like how social media has taken over, how the AI is taking over. So all of that stuff needs to be in check and and you know, human relationships are more important. Absolutely. I hope you write it and then come back on our podcast and we can promote it for you. Oh, yeah, well, it's actually, you, 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 you helped me think about some things. That's great. Good, good. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in for another episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow Into Today. We'll catch you at the next one. Thank you so much, Malesh, for joining us today. I learned a lot from your presentation and I wanted to thank Kirsten again for guiding that conversation and getting us all the information we needed out of today's episode. We hope to see everyone again in the next episode of AI Proficiency, turning tomorrow into today. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of AI Proficiency, turning tomorrow into today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe, and share this podcast within your network. These actions move mountains for our mission of sharing artificial intelligence knowledge. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on our next episode of AI Proficiency, turning tomorrow into today.